chapter of John this morning, John chapter number 8. When you preach in an expository manner, often two services so close together like we do, often there will be truths that are going to, they're going to overlap, they're going to intersect. There are truths that are there in one service and they're going to be there the next. And in some ways there are some similarities into what we're looking at this morning. This morning I want to just give you the subject we're going to look at before I even read the text. And it's simply entitled, The Bondage of Sin. The Bondage of Sin. Our Lord is continuing to respond back to the questions of the Pharisees who have been questioning Him and His authority. And His authority has been attacked on many different levels. Uh, Jesus made a statement, uh, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, again, sometimes when these were preached, it starts to run together. But this is in response to what Jesus said in verses 31 and 32. So let's, let's go ahead and read verse 31 and 32 and then read down through verse number 42 so we'll see the whole context thinking about this subject of the bondage of sin. The Bible says in verse 31, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me. Because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham." Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they of, to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Jesus uses two words. He uses a number of words repeated, but there are two words he mentions in this text. He uses the word truth, and he uses the word free. We live in a day and age today which you don't go many days or hours without hearing people talk about their need to be free and the truth. Sadly, in our day and age, truth has become a little bit obscured. People look in the face of truth and decide, I don't really want the truth because the truth doesn't fit my narrative. The truth doesn't line up with how I see the world. The truth doesn't fit my perspective. But Jesus is speaking about two steadfast and certain things. What freedom is and what truth is. They are, when they come to the things of God, they are not multifaceted. Truth is truth and free is free. Jesus is not speaking in the, so much the physical realm as he is the spiritual realm. 
But the question that's asked in verse 33 in response to Jesus' statement of knowing the truth and the truth shall make you free in verse 32 is really what alarms us as we see the Jews' thought process as to what freedom was and what truth is. Verse 33, they answered him and said, we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free. This is the reply to Jesus saying, giving a wonderful truth that simply says this, you'll know the truth if you continue in my word from verse 31, and the truth shall make you free. If you were to put out a call in this nation and even in this town and in society and say, do you want free? Nearly everybody would raise their hand and say, yeah, I'll take free. Uh, we're, we're vastly moving towards a society that wants everything for free, right? I'm not going to go too far on this, but that's free is a word that everybody wants to hear. When I go to the store, I want free. When I go to work, I want free. I want freedom. Jesus doesn't disconnect the freedom from the truth. As a matter of fact, true freedom is in the truth. Yeah, we have a society that wants free but doesn't want the truth. I think that's an accurate description of society. I want free, but I don't want the truth. If you were to ask the same question, do you want truth? People would say, what is truth? They would say truth is relative. Truth is however I seem to see truth. But freedom is another thing. The Jews here deny the truth and go right to the free. Here, in response to Jesus saying, being one of my followers will lead you to know the truth, and with that truth, you will be made free, their response was very striking. Now remember, I don't think they were thinking in spiritual terms. They were thinking in fleshly terms. They're looking at this and saying, what does Jesus mean by being free? And that's what their response in verse 33 is saying, we're never in bondage. To be in bondage means to be taken captive. It literally means to be in chains. It means to be restricted. It's the opposite of free. If a, if a person is imprisoned, they're in bondage. If a person is set free, the, the prison door is, is opened and the chains are released. They are, they are free in the physical realm. Jesus isn't talking about actual bonds and being in prison and being bond in chains or bound in chains rather. They are Abraham's seed. They declare their, their heritage. Jesus says, in me, you'll know the truth and the truth shall make you free. But they respond by saying, wait a minute, we're Abraham's seed. We're never in bondage to any man. Well, there's some irony here. Here are the people who claim to be Abraham's seed, who claim to be God's chosen people. They claim to be of the kingdom of God, and yet they make a statement that declares they really don't know what they're talking about because they say, we have never been in bondage. The funny thing is, we'll talk about this in a little while, they were under and would soon be under Roman bondage physically. But Jesus isn't talking about bondage from a flesh standpoint. What, is the, what does the Lord mean by the statement, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free? Freedom from what? Well, under what we understand before we move any further is understand that the Lord here is speaking of the bondage of sin. He's speaking of the bondage, which is in other terms, we might refer to it as spiritual slavery. You see, every man, woman, boy, and girl 
before they are converted, before they come to Christ, they are in bondage and they are in in bondage to sin. Sin is the very thing that is keeping them. It is the very thing that is preventing them. Before a man knows Christ, he is in complete bondage. Now, so that we don't make just a statement without biblical support, let's look at a couple of verses that show us man's bondage to sin. Let's go back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter number 64, and look at verse number 6. Isaiah 64, verse number 6. And we're looking at this picture of the bondage to sin. The Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah 64, verse 6, the Bible says, very familiar verse, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. An unclean thing is a reference to something that is impure. In the Old Testament, it would be something that was ceremonially impure. In other words, something that could not be received as part of a sacrifice, something that would not be accepted. So as we think about this, it symbolizes something. Something that is ceremonially impure or something that is defiled has a consequence. It breaks fellowship. Sin breaks fellowship with God. If I'm bound in sin, I have no fellowship with God. Uh, as, the, as the scripture reading in 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So a man today, like the Pharisees who were saying, we've never been in bondage, whether they were thinking fleshly or spiritually, They were saying, I've never been in bondage to anything. Yet the Bible declares that man is in bondage to sin. Why? Because man has no righteousness. Number two, man has no goodness. In the book of Romans, chapter number 7, verse number 18, man has no goodness. Remember what the Apostle Paul said about himself. Romans 7, verse 18, speaking of his own goodness, Paul said this, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Paul, as he speaks about that is in my flesh, though he is is the person sinning, Paul is referring to there's something else in him that is alien or foreign to his identity in Christ. In other words, without Christ, there is no goodness. Without Christ, there is no righteousness, like Isaiah 64, 6 said. So men have no righteousness, they have no goodness, but let's take this a few steps further. Biblically, over in the book of Romans, again, turn over to chapter 3 now, man also has no wisdom, no strength, and ultimately no hope. So here we have what it truly is to be in bondage to sin. Romans 3 verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. It's pretty clear that no person, no man apart from Christ has any goodness, any righteousness, no wisdom, no strength, and absolutely no hope. So with that being our standing, with that being man's standing, what is man ultimately under? He is under the curse of the law. He is bound to the law's demands. He's a prisoner. Therefore, he's in bondage. If you were to go to the prison, wherever you go to the county prison or county jail, go to a state prison, go to a federal penitentiary, and you were to go into one of those cell blocks, and if you were to ask any of them staying there, are you free? Every one of them would tell you, I'm not free. I'm in bondage. I'm in bondage. I'm being held. I'm being captive. Now, some of them will tell you I'm here because I deserve it. Others will tell you I'm innocent. There are cases that have happened where people are imprisoned unjustly. There was a technicality. But for the most part, nobody in prison is going to say I'm free. Why do they know they're not free? Because they know they can't leave. They know that there are prison bars around them. They know that there is razor wire on the outside that even if they get outside of the building and get into the yard, as it's said, as it's called, they're never going to get out. They know they're in bondage. They know that they are not free. Spiritually speaking, it's hard to see the bonds. But what does it tell us in 2 Peter 2 verse 19? The Bible tells us about this very specifically. 2 Peter 2, verse 19. Peter, as he's writing here, of course, he's, he's, he's dealing with false prophets. He's dealing with uh, false doctrine and how it was influencing the church and how it was affecting the morality of the church. This statement is made near the end in verse 19. While they promise them liberty, that's what the false prophets do, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. Servants brought in bondage. They are slaved. They are slaves, or we might say enslaved to sin. In other words, it is a bond that you cannot break. If you are in bondage to sin there is nothing you can do to break that bond just like the prisoner can do nothing to give himself free the pharisees what you got to remember who the pharisees were the pharisees believed that they were not bound because they were the keepers of the law remember that was their primary downfall Yet the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 6, verses 16 and 18, he says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked, now listen to this, that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin... Ye became the servants of righteousness. 
So we see there are two types of people. You are either a servant of sin or you are the servant of righteousness. Who is the key to breaking the servanthood to sin? Jesus Christ. He is the freedom. He is the truth. When Jesus spoke that to Abraham's seed, who they claimed Abraham's seed, what they were saying is this is the reason we're not in bondage is because we're Abraham's seed. And by the way, they were not speaking a falsehood. They were of the lineage and the heritage. But as we've been studying the book of Romans and studying the book of John, remember overlapping, we have learned the reality is is that being Abraham's seed from a physical sense doesn't make it spiritually accurate. Being Abraham's seed is not enough to say I have freedom from my sin. So what can we say about this bondage to sin? Well, first of all, we know this about man. Man is a fallen creature. Because he's a fallen creature, he is what we refer to as depraved. Not partially depraved, not 99.9% depraved, but total depravity. He is under the dominion of sin. He's not partially bound. He's not like the prisoner who has one foot outside the prison house and the other side. He is completely bound and under the dominion of sin and Satan. From that bondage, which ultimately being in bondage to sin has an ultimate fulfillment, which is what? It's death. That's the reality of what will happen. Only the grace of God and the truth of Christ can deliver that man. Only the truth of Christ can deliver a man who is the servant of sin. So there's really two characteristics of what it means to be in the bondage of sin. Number one, the bondage of sin is to be a servant to sin. That's very clear. We've already seen that. But number two, and I think not so often mentioned, and this is, we're not going to see this today. We'll see this next week. But also the bondage of sin is to be a servant of Satan. If I am in the bondage of sin to this day, I am, according to the scripture, I am a servant of sin and ultimately a servant of Satan. Now, if you go out into the world and you talk to most people, and you find a group of unbelievers, I can almost assure you, not 100%, nothing is that broad, that most people would never acknowledge that they're servants of Satan. They would never say that. Matter of fact, they would probably try to say something like this. I'm a pretty good person. Ultimately, when, when, when we're confronted with sin, often we confront back with why we're not so bad. So someone says, you know, you're a servant of Satan. You're a servant of sin. No, I'm, I'm not that bad. And we say, I'm not as bad as the person next to me, right? I'm, my neighbor, not my neighbor's really, my coworker, that's really bad. They, that, now that's, no, because we're not going to admit that. So what, what, was the Jew, what, were the, what was the Jews doing here? When Jesus talked about this, he immediately turns it on them and he says, they say we're Abraham's seed. Basically saying, we don't need to be made free. We're not in bondage. Because we're Abraham's seed. Folks, this is the same rationale that you get in the world today. They're not using terminology like that. They're not saying, I'm Abraham's seed. No, they're saying, I'm not bad enough. I'm not a servant of sin, and I'm not a servant of Satan. Because I'm not that bad. The reality is, is the bondage of sin, the Bible says, is to be a servant of sin. Go back to what Jesus says. Look again at verse 33 of John 8. 
They answered him, we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage. Not only, have, not only are they not now, they've never been in bondage. That would be like you and I who are saved today saying, we were never servants of sin. But yet biblically, before we became the servant of righteousness, we were the servants of sin. Sin had dominion over us. Everything we did was with a desire to please our sinful appetites. Everything. That's why man scoffs at total depravity. Like I said, even in our religious circles today, people, even churches, are afraid to admit about total depravity. They want to say, no, there's a sliver of goodness, and that sliver of goodness is what led me to finally call on Christ. If you think that it was your 99.9% total depravity and that just small percentage that actually is the goodness that led you to call on Christ, you don't understand the Scriptures. Your depravity did nothing to call on Christ. It was only by the grace of God that you desired to call on Christ. It wasn't because some goodness popped up all of a sudden. These Pharisees are proving total depravity by saying, listen, we don't need to be made free. We're not in bondage. We're Abraham's seed. Now again, did they make a true statement? Yeah, they were Abraham's seed. But the problem was, Abraham's seed in the flesh was not the source of freedom. Look what, they, look what they say, verse, again, end of verse 33. We're not in bondage to every man. How sayest thou ye shall be made free? Almost, how dare you tell us we need to be made free? They would soon find out, and later on we would read, as I mentioned to you, they would find themselves in bondage to the Romans. And later, some of these same Jews would be the ones that would say something like this, we have no king but Caesar. They would actually be in bondage and then acknowledge that they were okay with their bondage. They would say, we're, we'll be in, we'll be, we, we have no king but Caesar. We'd rather have Caesar than Christ. Proving once again that the bondage of sin, they were still enslaved by it. Men are not concerned when they wish to resist Christ. As a matter of fact, they will do everything they can then believe on him. These Pharisees were they were displaying to us what depravity does. Depravity sees the face of truth and says, I'm going to do everything I can to resist it. That's why it's so foolish to actually begin to think that that's what was convinced to finally call on Christ, that your depravity actually had a little glimmer of hope pop into it. No, we've already seen man has no righteousness, he has no goodness, he has no wisdom, he has no strength, he has no hope. It's only by the grace of God that the truth enlightens him. Jesus is standing there as the truth. And folks, I don't think we see the significance of this often. Here, the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus himself is standing before them. He's announcing, I'm, basically, I'm the truth, and they still did everything they could to resist him. I've heard people say that about their own, their own uh, bondage to sin. They'll say, look, if Christ was standing right here, I'd believe on him. No, they wouldn't. Even if Christ came bodily and stood behind this pulpit today, and there were people here who were still in unbelief, just his presence would not make you any more likely to finally come to Christ. Because the Word of God is the Word of God. It is his Word speaking. It is as if Christ himself is speaking. Here the Pharisees are actually standing before the Son of God, and they say, we're not in bondage. 
Jesus answers them in verse 34, and he says, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Now immediately we go to that and they say, wait a minute, I know I still sin. Does that mean I'm the servant of sin? This is habitual sin. This is habitually living as if you are not a free man. Uh, this would be like the person, again, I, pardon these crude illustrations. These are the kind of things that come into my mind. But this would be uh, like the person who's been released from prison, but yet continues to want to get back in. It's the man that as they let him outside the gates, they give him the brown paper bag with a little bit of money and say the bus stops down there. And he says, no, I'd rather get back in. A free man in Christ has no desire to go back to the very thing that they were bound by. You're, you're not going to say, look, I got, I got my free pass out of here, but I want to go back because I had it so much better in the prison house. No, he says, I've been made free. I'm going, I'm going the other direction. But it's a man who habitually lives in sin. He's not a free man. He is still a slave to sin. Listen, it's very simple. If you still find delight or satisfaction in sin, you have no right to call yourself a free man. So if you say, look, I'm free man in Christ, but yet I love my sin, you don't have a right to claim freedom. Now, again, we could get into a lot of discussions of what does that mean? That, well, that person does this. They must not be. Listen, let's not try to make this something it doesn't say. Habitually, if you still love sin, if there's any part of you that still loves sin, you've got to really ask yourself the question, am I really free from the bondage of sin? Now, I'm not saying do we still sin because every one of us sin. You've sinned today already. You've had a sinful thought, a sinful action, a sinful act. Something's happened. You've sinned already, but it should not be something you're delighting in. You see, before Christ, you actually delight in sin. It's actually why you get up in the morning. Do you know today there are people who got up on this Sunday morning with a desire to do the most depraved thing they could do? There are people that live that way. And yet there are Christians today that say, that's what I do, but I'm free. Jesus would say you're not. He would say you're still a servant to sin if you still love that sin. If you're still habitually sinning and finding love and delight in the very thing in which Christ died for, you really don't have a right to call yourself a free man. Lord's not speaking about the freedom of the body specifically. He's talking about the freedom of the soul. A lot of times we have a hard time discerning when Jesus is speaking about these eternal heavenly things and the physical things. Sometimes he uses physical examples to demonstrate these eternal things, and sometimes he's just speaking straight up eternal things, and that's what he's doing here. He's talking about the, the bondage spiritually of being a servant of sin. It's a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. What does that reveal? It reveals a heart that's still in bondage to sin. Folks, I, I, may, I may say this and I may regret it, but if we can go a single day without repenting of some sin, we might want to just examine ourselves. I mean, sin ought to so bother us that we're not okay with it. I mean, again, this isn't popular. The, the modern church builders aren't even preaching this anymore. But if, if we still find 
that there's nothing. I, have, I got to the end of my day, and I have nothing to repent of. I would ask you the question, really? You made it 24 hours with nothing to repent of? I'm not sure we can make it a half a day. See, it's an unrepentant heart that says, I don't need to repent. I'm not in bondage anymore. Repentance should be a daily, a day, it's a daily confession. Verse 35, as he continues, he says, And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. Now, that servant abideth not in the house, this, there are some discrepancies as to what was alluded here. And it's not that because it's an error, there's just different opinions. And again, Jesus is speaking in parables. And remember, we talked about parables were not necessarily so people could understand more. Actually, the parables were blinding. Parables were used not to reveal more truth, but yet to blind people to the truth. And that's a, that's a whole other study. But it could have been an illusion. Some commentators say that what Jesus was saying here was an illusion to the expulsion of Ishmael, who was also the son of Abraham, but he was a son of Abraham by the slave woman, you remember. And he was excluded from the covenant or excluded from the covenant household. That that may have been what Jesus was referring to. He was referring to, hey, listen, you remember the story about Ishmael. But I also think more specifically... He may have been implying that the unbelieving Jews were the not the true children of Israel, or not the true children of Abraham, rather. In other words, as Ishmael was not the true child of Abraham, he was excluded. That Jesus is somehow by telling them, those who are the servant and only in the flesh only, they're not going to abide in the, in the house forever. But notice what he says, but the Son abideth forever, capital S. That's a reference to Christ. Those that are in Christ abide forever. The servants in Ishmael's house, they were cast out. Again, we may look at it and we might say, those that are in the Son, it is not a temporary thing, it is an eternal thing. A servant could be dismissed from a household, but a son will never be dismissed. We could have a servant in, in our homes. Most of us, I don't think, have the means to do that, but we could have a servant, somebody that we pay to come and do certain things for us. We could dismiss them and say, I'm, we, I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm done. But we're not referred to as much as we are servants of God as we are sons of God. God doesn't dismiss his sons. He doesn't send them out. Those that are in Christ are servants of God. A man who one day claims he's a servant of God might actually fall from grace and die, but if you are the son of God, you will never fall from grace and you will never ultimately perish. If we're able to, as we're going to study this on Wednesday night, if we in truth are able to call God our Father, do you realize that being able to use that title, you will be able to always use that title for all of eternity because our Father suggests a relationship. That Lord's Prayer that we're studying, the very first part when Jesus tells his disciples how to pray, he begins, Our Father. Our Father. That is a blessed eternal title. Now remember, they were saying Abraham's our father. We're Abraham's seed. Jesus was saying that's not enough just to have the physical seed of Abraham. You need to be of the spiritual seed. 
It would be fair to say the servant of sin does not live and abide in the house of God or in the true church of God. You can't be a servant of God and a servant of Christ and abide in the true church. Over the years, I'm not thinking of anybody specifically. I'm not thinking of anybody now or in the past. But I would dare say that there have been experiences, all of us, that we have sat next to or maybe been that person who was claiming to have been a child of God but yet was still in the bondage of sin, even on a church membership role. Being a member of a church doesn't mean you're not still a servant in a bond to sin. So many people say, the way I'm going to break my sin problem is I'm going to join that church. And because we've done such a a horrible job, we've basically just said, listen, all it requires now is just make a profession of faith. And if you say you're saved, we're going to believe you're saved. And church roles have filled up with people who are not the servants of righteousness. They're still still the servants of of sin. There's never been a conversion. And again, I'm not thinking about anybody in particular because only God knows that. But coming to church, being on a membership role, does not break the bonds of sin. Coming and paying your dues doesn't break the bonds of sin. Only Christ can do that. It's interesting that Jesus was basically saying, you'll know the truth. If you knew the truth, you'd know me. And they didn't know him. So the bondage of sin is to be a servant of sin. Number two, the bondage of sin is to be a servant of Satan. And we're going to just build the foundation for this, and then we'll look at the rest of this next week. But look what he says in verse 36. He repeats what he said in verse 32. Oh, and now he expands. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Let's understand something today. Only Christ alone has the ability to rescue people from their bonds of sin. When we say things like, in Christ alone, my hope is found, when we sing that song, we're not just singing that God is my only hope to give me a prosperous life today. We're talking about in Christ alone is the only way to rescue me from the servant of being a servant of sin. But even more specifically, being a servant of Satan. Again, no unbeliever typically says, I'm a servant of Satan. What's scary, it's actually scary. There are Satan worshipers out there. You folks realize this, right? It's actually real. There are people that actually intentionally say, we are servants of Satan. And they meet regularly. They actually call themselves the church of Satan. I mean, think about that for just a moment. What the church is, how blasphemous that is. The church of Satan. The church is Christ and Christ alone. What, what Jesus is going to say to these Pharisees next week, well, we'll see it, is absolutely mind-blowing what he's accusing them of. He is basically telling them, you are, a, you are part of the church of Satan. Because he says, you're the father, you're of your father, the devil. Your father is who you have likeness to. Your father is who you do the deeds of. For a child of God, our Father, we do the acts and the deeds of what our Heavenly Father is, not of what Satan is. But he says here in verse 36 that if you have freedom of sonship, you are free from the bondage not only of sin, but you are free from the bondage of Satan. There is no one as free in the household of God than his children. 
There is no one as free in the, God's, in the God the Father's household than his children are. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. But look what he says. I know that ye are Abraham's seed. So here he acknowledges. I know that you Jews, you are of Abraham. He doesn't say that's not right. You're making a false accusation. But look what he says. I know you're of Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me. And here's where Jesus begins to really lay the foundation of what he's getting ready to say. Notice that last phrase. Because my word hath no place in you. Now, if the word of God has no place in a person, doesn't that make them the servant of that which is anti-God or anti-Christ? Absolutely. If the word has no place in me, then I'm a servant of whoever has that place. The servant of God, the word of God, is in me. It has a place in me. The father of believers has believers for his children. He says, if you were Abraham's children, and he'll go on further, he said, you would do the works of Abraham. He says, you're not even doing that. There's no place. My word has no place in you. Verse 38, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. In other words, the things I'm speaking of come from my father. The things you do and the things you say come from your father. Notice a very, a very subtle difference. Capital F when Jesus says my father, lowercase f when he says your father. What Jesus is declaring is your father's not my father. My father is almighty God. Your father is someone else. Now he's not identified him yet. He's going to do that in a later verse, but he's laying the foundation by saying we don't share the same father. Folks, again, I'm trying not to get too far off base here, but it is highly and completely inappropriate for a person who doesn't know God to pray our father. There are churches, denominations all over this world who pray that Lord's Prayer as a means that an act of grace has taken place. They're saying it in a repetitious manner as just a means. They don't even have the right to call him their father because he's not. Jesus is telling them very carefully, you don't have the right to call yourself a free man because you don't have the truth. My word has no place in you and we don't even have the same father. Your father is not my father. Our Lord admits, yes, you're Abraham's seed according to the flesh, but you're proving that you're not Abraham's seed in a spiritual sense. You're nothing like the father who you claim is your father. This is a fair statement. Men always act according to their nature. Men always act according to their nature. A polluted fountain never produces pure water. The book of James talks about that. We looked at that a few weeks ago on Wednesday. <clears throat> it's not going to produce something that it isn't. Men always act according to what their nature is. When a man is still in outside of Christ, he's going to act as his nature is. 
That's what the Apostle Paul was writing about in Romans when he said, I don't do the things that I want to do. He was acting outside. But Jesus, as he says, they respond to him in verse 39, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, if ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. He's basically saying, if, you were, if he was truly your father, you would do the works, and you're not even doing the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me. Here it is. A man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. Jesus had not even told them who their father was, but as a rule, men will do the deeds of their father. How do you test the claims of someone? It's very simple. You test the claims of who they are by how like their father they are. My father's in heaven now, but if when my dad was alive, if I was to say that I'm his son, there would have been characteristics that people would have immediately said, yes, I see the likeness. Not just physical likeness. Mannerisms. There are things, you know how they say, when you're a kid that you're going to be just like your parents, it does happen. I look in the mirror every day and I see things of my dad. I see my dad. I even see myself beginning to think like my dad thought. Things that when I was a teenager who knew it all. How many of you were teenagers who knew it all? Who now I look and I say, that's the way I think now. There's a likeness now. There's a striking likeness to my dad. Occasionally people will tell me, wow, you look like your dad. You sound like him. I only give that illustration not to glorify him, but to tell you that as children of God, there ought to be a striking likeness to who our father really is. If you claim God is your father, but you live like Satan, it's not going to be believable. I mean, believers will beg you to believe. Believe me, I'm really a child of God. Listen, if you have to plead with me to believe that you're a child of God, isn't there something wrong with that? Yes, I know I do all this stuff and it's a regular part of my life, but I'm a child of God, believe me. And you say, why? And they say something like this, because I know when I was four years old, I prayed a prayer or I got saved when I was four. Maybe you did, but you're sure isn't a likeness now. You know, no matter what I would try to do, even I would never do this, but even if I tried to say, you know what, that my earthly father who's now in glory, I'm not his son. You realize I couldn't, I could never actually officially denounce myself from him. No matter what happens, even if I said he's not my father, he will always have been my earthly father, no matter what I try to do. I could go and change my name and I'd still be his son. But why would I want to change my name if that's my father? Why would I not want to identify with the Christ who saved me? And this is, again, this is more in the spiritual realm. Jesus is not just dealing with outward appearances. He's dealing with spiritually. Our Lord tells them that their deeds are not the deeds of Abraham, but the deeds of the devil. Look what he says in verse number 40. He said, but now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Now he's, uh, we only know who he's talking about because of what verse 44 says. Then said they to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. There, there, there's capital F. They're associated. No, our father, our God is the same one you're talking about. 
But look at verse 42. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would, what? Love me. Let me put it in modern day vernacular. Jesus is saying, you could say, tell me all you want, but if you were truly of my father, you would love me, not seek to kill me. Very simply. It's an amazing people. It's amazing how many people say they love God, but hate the truth. Churches are filled with people who say, I love God, but when you talk about the truth of sin, you talk about the truth of redemption, you talk about the truths, they scatter. I don't love that God. Can I tell you the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament? And there have been so many religious systems that have tried to mess this up and have tried to put God into little branches and say, this is what God used to be. This is what God is now. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. And if you believe some of the spiritual theologians that have come up with their own way that God changes according to how man changes, listen, you've completely put God into a God of your own imagination. Sure, that God's lovable. You know why? Because God's there for me. God's doing what I want him to do. God's going to give me a million dollars because that's what God's there for is to make my life happy now. It's one of the most dangerous deceptions there is this prosperity gospel that says Jesus is here to make your life here on earth as pleasant as can be. I'm going to tell you this, no true believer is comfortable here, ultimately. If you're comfortable with what this is, and you're comfortable that I'm all right being around wickedness on every corner, there might be something wrong with us. Child of God, Paul himself said, "We're we're, we're just passing through. We have that dual citizenship. I came across this quote from Tozer, and this is so true, and I want you to listen to this. The devil is a better theologian than any of us and is still a devil. See, you think you're smarter than Satan and you're actually not. He actually knows his theology better than you do, better than I do. I mean, you go all the way back to the garden and you read that. Hey, he knew who God is. The Bible even says the devil knows and believes in God and trembles. He knows. We sit and say in our pride, they say, well, no, no. Um, I'm, I'm more spiritually astute than Satan. Theologically, you're not. He's theological. He's a theologian, and yet he's still the devil. The Pharisees were theological. They were giants. They were theologians. Again, I actually believe that we all should be theologians. Pastors should be theologians. We should know theology. We should know about the theology of God. This is something I missed for nearly the first parts of my ministry and the first parts of even... I didn't see the importance of knowing theology. To me, preaching was just getting up and trying to preach a motivational message to get people to do stuff. I'm being honest with you. That's what I thought preaching was for. To get you to, get you to a place where you can't help it, but you've got to get up on your seat and go get saved or go do something for God. And if you did, I'm going to preach a message on it and make you feel guilty. That was my whole life. Every week I'm sitting in my office and I'm, I'm writing sermons. How do I really get people to move? How do I motivate them? No, Preaching is just delivering what, the, what thus saith the Lord and letting it at that. But any man born of God, Jesus says in verse 42, 
will and must love him. Again, we're not talking about love that's our modern day emotional only love. We're not even talking about a love between a husband and a wife or a mother and their children or a father and their children. We're talking about a love that can only come from the indwelling presence of God. If I'm truly a child of God, I'm going to love the purity of Christ. I'm going to love the loveliness of his character. I'm going to love all of his claims of who he says to be. Christ tells these Jews, he said, you would see me not as someone to kill, but someone to receive. If God is a man's father, that man is going to love Christ. Jesus himself said, I and my father are one. I came to do the works of my father. That's what we're here to do is the works of our father. We'll pick up next week, but Jesus is I'm going to leave us with this question. He's going to ask them, why do ye not understand my speech? And he's going to say something very striking because ye cannot hear my word. Not you will not, but you cannot hear my word. Christ didn't hold back from saying the hard things. Sometimes I think we're afraid to speak to sinners we're afraid of making them upset. Listen, when we realize what we are, we, we are broken. We become broken in our sin. By us not giving people the truth because we're afraid it's going to upset them, it's one of the greatest mistakes we're ever going to make. Folks, understand, they're in bondage to sin. This is an eternal matter. This is not something that's just going to make their day good or bad. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about being outside of the body of Christ. And again, no doctrine that's preached from this pulpit or preached from this church ought to hinder you in talking to people about the Lord. If you're using the doctrines of election and the doctrines of sovereignty and providence of saying, I don't have to talk to anybody because God ultimately, you believe in something that this church is not propagating. This does not alleviate our responsibility to talk to sinners. We are still to be proclaiming and telling people that they need to be saved. When you go to talk to somebody who is outside the body of Christ, it's not talking to them about the doctrine of election. It's talking to them about the doctrine of sin. It's talking about what the reality of sin does. People accuse people who are theologically strong of being so theologically strong that they're not practical. That's not what true Bible Christianity is. You're practical because your theology and your doctrine is sound. Paul was the most sound doctrinal man you see in all the scripture. How did he apply it practically? He went out and preached. He talked to people. He didn't sit there and say, now I'm just going to watch and see who God saves. No, Paul believed in evangelism. Don't let the word evangelism escape you. Don't let the word gospel preaching. Those are all things we're supposed to be doing. It's not just sitting back, but you cannot evangelize and you cannot preach the gospel unless you preach about sin. You can't give in to the emotional side when someone says, well, my child can't be a sinner. The Bible says they are. How can a, how can a person be born... How can they be born of sin? They haven't done anything wrong because you don't understand the depravity of man. If you teach that, listen, they don't become a sinner until they sin, you're already on the wrong doctrinal foot. 
And uh, folks, there are churches that are teaching that. They're saying they're not a sinner until they actually sin. Well, when does that happen? And then they go to this excuse. Well, they have to know they're sinning. That's not what the Bible says. It's a frightening thing to think about being a servant of Satan. It's a frightening thing to think about being a servant of sin. But there is freedom to be found in Christ. Why would Jesus say such important, deep things to religious people who claim to believe in him? Remember, this all started in the people that believed in him. It actually said that back in verse 30. As he spake these words, many believed. But then he said, if you believe on me, you're going to continue in my word. Here's a question for you. Why did Jesus speak differently to them? I want you to chew on this this week. Why did he speak differently to them than he did to the woman caught in adultery? Think about it. He dealt with that woman completely different than he dealt with these Jews right here. It's an interesting study. Go back and see. See if you can figure it out. You won't, but see if you can figure it out. Because you're going to try to find, here's what you're going to do. You're going to try to find there's a reason, a human reason, why he didn't speak to her the same way he spoke to them. You're going to try to find a human right. You're going to say, well, she was more worthy. No. What was it? That's one of those mysteries of God. Listen, one of the grandest things we're ever going to do is ask ourselves the question, have I actually submitted to what God says about me? You know, if God's word tells me what I am, do I believe it or I just deny it because I don't like what it says? I don't want the truth. See, it's easy to stand here today and say, listen, uh, these, these lost people out there who are still outside of Christ, listen, why don't they just admit what they really are? Why don't you as a believer admit what you really are? What am I today? I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's all I have. I have nothing to add to it. I have no other reason. It wasn't because God looked at me and said, now he's valuable. She's valuable. That person can be a choice servant for me. Didn't even enter into the equation. Was the woman in adultery caught in the bondage of sin? Yep. Were they caught in the bondage of sin? Absolutely. Yet Jesus spoke differently to them. I'm going to tell you, I'm not sure what the lesson is in that. I do know it declares the sovereignty of God in it all. He dealt with her differently than he dealt with them. The bondage of sin. I hope today you can say that you've been free, not because of who you are, who your family is, or what you do, but because you're in Christ. And Christ has indeed set you free. Let's stand all around if you would.